I would ask if all the moms in the room could stand right now. That would be awesome. It is Mother's Day. Here comes. There's all the moms in the room standing. I would request that you remain standing, and we're going to pray for you today on this Mother's Day 2023. Let's join together in prayer. Lord, we approach your throne on behalf of the mothers whom you have entrusted with the care of your most precious gift, little ones, life, children. Lord, we thank you for creating each mom with a unique combination of gifts and talents. We thank you for the sacrifice each mom gives for her children, for the hands that are calloused from washing and wiping and scrubbing and mixing and packing and stirring and hugging and patting and discipling and holding and writing and erasing and painting and pouring. Lord, we thank you for their tirelessness their perseverance, and their devotion. Lord, we pray that you give each mom strength because no matter how old the children are in their lives, they're still their mom. Lord, help the moms in the room here to see that in every task, the eternal significance that you place in each one of those tasks in motherhood. Lord, I, I pray that you will help them to understand that the most radical, the most world-changing events happen anonymously in her home. And Lord, we ask you to be the daily bread for the moms in here. We ask you to be their living water. We ask you to be their source of spiritual and physical strength. Lord, we pray that the same grace that flowed from the Father to the Son to us in salvation will flow from the mothers to their children as they teach them your ways. We pray that each mother embraces the goodness of the gospel. Lord, give each mother here a worshipful reverence of you. You, the creator and sustainer of life. Lord, help each mother to rest in the knowledge that they are but stewards of your children and that only your spirit can produce change in the hearts of each boy and girl. Lord, may each mother today and forever, find rest in you and you alone. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's say thanks to the mothers again that are in the room. All right, you can be seated. The blessings of motherhood, and one of the things that we do here, uh, specifically during this time frame, starting on Mother's Day, going through Father's Day, is we do a fundraiser for the Open Arms Pregnancy Center. And during this time of year, starting on Mother's Day, like I said, ending on Father's Day, every Sunday, every day in between, we ask you to fill one of these containers full of change or checks or cash or whatever it is to help the ongoing support of Open Arms Pregnancy Center where they spend hours and hours tirelessly reaching people uh, with the truth that, that God has given them a precious gift. There's a baby there. And not to destroy that baby, but to have that baby have life and hope and a future. And so what we do is we ask for you to fill these up. They're conveniently placed at the back of the auditorium. You can take one of those when, when you leave. And every week, if you fill one up and bring it back, we'll get it to open arms uh, to the pregnancy center. Maybe you need to get a new one each week, or you can hand one to some people to help fill out. Whatever it is, 
uh, we'll make sure it gets to them. And at the end of that time frame, we'll let you know what our total was and, and uh, what, uh, what we have been doing to help them. It's uh, incredible. I had the privilege this week of being in uh, North Carolina for a conference with Child Evangelism Fellowship. And they had, a, they had a young group there that was doing a concert the last night. And they're actually pretty good. I wasn't thinking they would be, but they were actually pretty good. And uh, the twins, uh, the, the, young, the two youngest on the stage, uh, while the mom was pregnant, they figured out that the placenta was sending more blood to one of the the boys, and then the other one just stopped growing in, you know, in the womb. And so the doctors, doctor said, we think you probably should terminate baby A so that baby B is okay uh, and, you know, will be okay, but A may not. And uh, by God's grace, obviously, they said no. And uh, when you're up there watching the two of them sing on stage and they tell the story, you're like, all right, this is ultra cool. And, you know, God blesses life. And, um, and so uh, we are all about that here and would love for you to participate in that. And uh, what, a, what a better Sunday, I can't think of a better Sunday to start that uh, than today. So... Please feel free to grab those at the end of the service. And right now, I'd love for you to take your Bibles out with me and turn to Isaiah chapter 62. Isaiah chapter 62, we have, for the last almost year and a half, been going through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, the book of Isaiah. And if you've kind of thumbed a few pages over, you know that we are so close to the end and it has been an incredible journey together over that time frame and we are in a section of Isaiah where Isaiah is just proclaiming the good news of Christ and proclaiming you know what the what the future is going to look like and we've been in the middle of that over the last few weeks and Isaiah chapter 62 uh, proclaims once again the good news of Jesus Christ and his church. And I am encouraging you to read along with me. It's only 12 verses that we're seeing here this morning, and we'll walk through all 12 together. And if you didn't bring a Bible, we have Bibles underneath the seats in front of you and in back, and you could take one of those Bibles out and use that if you didn't bring one. And if you need a Bible or you know someone who needs a Bible, we would encourage you to take one of those with you and give that to them or use that as your own if you don't have one. Isaiah chapter 62. You see there on the title, Christ's passionate zeal for the glory of his bride. Weddings are pretty cool. Weddings are special. Apparently, Daniel, our associate pastor, has got everyone he knows having weddings over the last three weeks, but we'll be happy when he's back, right? But weddings are incredible. I, th I actually think in the life of a gentleman, a man, there's probably no more powerful moment than when the guy gets to see his bride for the first time on the day of their wedding. <laughs> yeah, do I get an amen back there from Ron? Yes, there we go. You, 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 if you've been to this type of wedding, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Every, everyone rises and she's in the back doors of the back of the church open and there she is. And I've, I have done a lot of weddings over the last 30 years where I've officiated those weddings and I get to stand there and I get to stand next to the groom. And it's always kind of a kick for me to see what the reaction's going to be. And she, you know, she has, and ladies, you know, and that, that, that's work that day, isn't it? It's uh, the, like, like no other day of your life, everything's got to be perfect, right? 
The, the dress has got to be perfect. The hair has got to be perfect. The cosmetics need to be perfect. The jewelry needs to be perfect. Uh, the shoes, if, if the shoes are showing, need to be perfect. The dress is perfect. Everything needs to be perfect. And truthfully, it, it's one of those days where the bridegroom uh, drinks in the beauty of the joy of that moment in so many different ways. And I, there would be one that happened early on, one, probably like third or fourth wedding that I officiated, a guy named Stuart. He and Amy were getting married, and Stuart was standing next to me, and the door's open, and Amy's there, and he started bawling. Now, so there's two different reactions in the room right now. There's, I heard a bunch of awe, and I heard the guys like, oh, come on. But I, I was like, oh, this is going to be fun. <laughs> and so uh, it, it, you guys know me well enough. If you've been around, you know, I, I, I will go off the script a little bit as far as, you know, what was planned. And there was no way I wasn't going to mention this. And so I was like, okay, eventually he will stop crying. He didn't. <laughs> the whole ceremony he was bawling. And it wasn't because he was like, oh no, I've made a mistake. <laughs> he was overwhelmed with joy. And I remember we got to, I mean, we were halfway through the ceremony and I'm like, hey, Stu, you need to like shape up, man. <laughs> I didn't say that, but I'm thinking that. I'm like, how in the world is he going to do the vows? This, this is going to be interesting. So we get to the vows and there were, you know, they were the standard vows, and, and we're, I'm like, so if you repeat after me, you know, I, Stu, take you, Amy, and, and he's just like, <gasps> just sobbing. <laughs> Amy had to do the vows for him, and that pretty much happened in their whole marriage, and, um, but it was beautiful. It was really fun to watch how overwhelmed he was in the beauty and the joy of the moment. I remember getting married uh, with Jenny back there, and for me, I was just like, man, this is awesome. She's beautiful. And the reason I, I, I tell those stories is that the picture of marriage, this mysterious covenant between man and woman with Christ in the center, prefigures the future union between, between Christ and his bride, the church. And the radiance of the bride coming down the aisle, that's actually what we see here in Isaiah chapter 62. Jesus comes and is the groom and takes the bride, the church to himself in this act of unity between God and redeemed humanity. Every Christian wedding is a foretaste, a, a foretelling of a type, a shadow of prophecy of the future reality of what that's going to be. But there is a big difference in this. On that wedding day, I had absolutely nothing to do with how beautiful Jenny was. I, I, zero. Right, guys? I had nothing to do with her appearance. But the radiant beauty of the church, the bride of Christ, is all done by the groom by Christ. And he, through the redemption of Christ and the blood of Christ, he enjoys the beauty of the bride, the church, the redeemed people. And it's the heavenly Zion, it's the new Jerusalem, the completed work of the bridegroom. See, Jesus found his bride corrupt and 
defiled and, and ugly in rebellion, defiant in her heart, spiritually dead. As Paul says, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus redeemed her, the church, by his own blood. He, he raised her from the dead spiritually. He washed her, the church, with water through the word in order that he might present her to himself as the radiant bride without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but what? Holy and blameless. And throughout every generation of church history, Jesus Christ has been preparing his people in the same way, little by little, preparing his bride for the glorious future wedding day. Every beam of the glory of the church will be his. Every sparkle of the radiance of his church will be his. Every holy aspiration will be completed. Every passionate desire for him will be completed. He will have worked all of that in by his power through the work of the Holy Spirit. And Isaiah 62 speaks of that. Isaiah 62 is best interpreted as a first-person description from Jesus on his relentless, passionate zeal to perfect Zion, to be ready for that day. I already noted, you may have not heard it, you might zip through it pretty quick, but Zion is what is the new Jerusalem, the people of God, the church. It all has to do with God's people. And what we see when we dive in here in the first five verses is this desolate, destroyed, disgusting, diminished people replaced with delight. Let's read together. I'll read for you, starting in verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory, and you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of Yahweh will designate. You will also be a crown of glory in the hands of Yahweh and a turban of royalty in your hand of your God. It will no longer be said to you forsaken. No to your land will it any longer be said desolate, but you will be called my delight is in her, and your land married. For Yahweh takes pleasure in you, and to him your land will be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Let's pray together. Lord, we... Thank you for your word, and may we, as we walk through this together this morning, may we discern what it means to be found in you and to be your delight. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So many people, once again, are looking for the meaning of human history. Well, I'm just going to share with you what it is. God intends to prove through Christ how much he can love and bless ruined human beings. That's it. That's, that's human history. Jesus redeeming the church, redeeming his people. And his love is the, is the nature of delight. The Jewish people long ago they thought they were forsaken. They were 
in captivity, they're like, when do we get to go back to the Holy Land? And many times we feel like that too. I feel like I'm in captivity of some sort. When do I get to be with God? But God comes and changes the subject. The gospel announces that if you are in Christ, God delights in you. His love can be described with a very emotional language. Basically, what we see in here is that God says, hey, I have got a special name for you. I've got a special name for you. I always, I always find it interesting when you, you, you hang out with couples that have been married for, a, you know, even a little while or a while. You stumble across the fact that they call them each other different names sometimes. Like, I had no idea that was your name. Well, it's just between the two of us, really. And, and it's, it's, you know, you call it sometimes a pet name. You know, that's my pet name for whoever. Well, God has a special loving name. And that's what we get there when it, when it says in, in verse, uh, six, or in chapter 62 there, when it says down in verse 4, but you will be called, my delight is in her. Hephzibah. And really, this is a special new name, and it's signifying in the language there that you're no longer defined by your past. It's God saying, I have now redefined you with a new name of my choosing. I am rewriting your future, and nothing can change that. You see, in the gospel, God looks right in the eyes of all of us and says in Hebrews 13, verse 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. There was a New Testament scholar that I read this week concerning this section of scripture that really wanted to make sure that everyone that reads the section of scripture understands that they need to unpack the unusual force of the words that are here of that statement there in verse four, my delight is in her because it is, it is really saying in that statement, it will no longer be said to you forsaken nor to you land will it any longer be said desolate what he said was this, the force of that statement is saying this, never, never, never in any circumstance whatsoever, God will not fail you. It was a passionate gladness of surety of the covenant. And when you are totally sure that you're in that right relationship? When you are totally sure, that is high-octane high joy, isn't it? And Isaiah devotes his life to promoting that. He says, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And verse 1, going back to that, it, we neglect the emphasis that is said there. The prophet Isaiah is deeply moved. Something is gripping him, and he's saying, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. Zion, the city of God, the church. When we look here, You could go, wow, something's wrong potentially, and he's got he's to change this. Because when you look around today, many people, the nations see nothing of God in the human landscape for many people. The nations see nothing about salvation. 
just pain, sorrow, war, destruction, and death. And Isaiah's heart is broken. It's broken for God's people in his generation because salvation is not going forth with a burning torch. And what is being said in here, go back to the very first words of verse 1, for Zion's sake, those three words. What God is saying here through Isaiah is your life passion should be defined by those three words. For Zion's sake. When your time here on earth is done and everyone kind of sits around and if you're going to have a headstone, if there's going to be a phrase on that, what really for a Christian should be on every single one of ours is for Zion's sake. That should be the statement that our life makes. Because I have been appointed by God, you have been appointed by God as the human delivery system for joy. You have, for joy inexpressible, overflowing into a dying world. And that joy is the church, his church, his bride. And that joy of that marriage ceremony, the first time you see the bride and everyone's like, this is awesome and everyone's cheering and all of that, that is supposed to be the continual joy of What's going on with the church? A joy inexpressible, overflowing into a dying world. God's saying, that's my plan. There's no plan B. It's the church. And we live our life for Zion's sake because of what Christ has done for us. Now, over the last generations or so, here in the United States, here in America, Christians have kind of diminished that with how we do church. And really, in many ways, we've laid a, a foundation of sand for the future churches. Because what has happened is over the last 30, 40 years, many churches have jerry-rigged their own hybrid versions of Christianity. And they don't even think in the terms of the loyalty to Christ as the groom. They don't think for Zion's sake, they think for my sake. So many Christians today are living a really, what they think, conveniently free-floating way of life. They try to feel normal with the culture. They don't want to feel out of step with the culture. But Jesus tells us very clearly, if you're going to live with me as your groom, you're going to feel out of step with those that are not Christians yet. Because you're gonna you're gonna act and be different. But what has happened is in many church circles today, if you if you act or, or are a little different, or if you don't watch certain movies or shows, or if you don't say certain things, or if you believe different things than the world. Many that go to church go, oh, that, that, that kind of seems super spiritual and I don't want to be like that. But you see, to God, we're, we're his bride, the church, his people. We're his bride. 
And what that simply means is that to God, if you're all about self-protecting, kind of me-first Christianity, that's not even recognizable to God as being people of his church. See, for Zion's sake, and if you haven't figured it out yet, I'm kind of camping out on that phrase this morning. For Zion's sake defines a way of life. It defines a way of life that works and prays and gives sacrificially. It gets involved when we do church membership here. We have people really, you know, sign a statement saying that they are going to be loyal first to Christ, of course, and protect the ministry of his church. And church membership really can be defined and summarized with these three words, for Zion's sake. But our generation, man, they just don't like that. We live in this hyper-individualistic devotion of self. And it plays itself out in so many different ways. Like, well, if I feel a certain way, then I must be that way. Instead of being God's people. It's being me and maybe trying to add God to it if it works. You see, God's made a covenant with his church. And the church's salvation, our salvation, should do something pretty cool. And that is to burn like a torch. Because the church is sharing the truth of the redemption of Christ to the world. And Isaiah here has been showing us in this discourse over so many different chapters a future day when the nations run towards Christ through his church. We need to re-embrace being the church that God has called us to be, to be his bride. And so what that means is kind of like this, is if your relationship with church is kind of ambiguous or sporadic or subject to convenience, the problem is not your relationship with your church. The problem is the relationship with Christ. Christ is committed to the revival of the world through the revival of the church. To God, the most important thing in all of created reality is his church. When you read these verses, to God, that is what's the crown of beauty in his hand. For us, the greatest joy should be people accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior and growing in him and being a part of his church. No, not just West Hills Church, but his church. Are you praying for his church? Are you praying for the local expression of churches in the Los Angeles area, those that follow the totality of God's word? Are you praying for all of them, all of the believers in this area to bring forth the torch for his sake? About 200 years ago, a guy by the name of Timothy Dwight was the president of Yale University. Yale University then was a solid Christian college. And he wrote these words. I doubt the president of Yale University would write these words today. But this is the president of Yale University 200 years ago. I love thy church, O oh God. Her walls before thee stand. Dear as the apple of thine eye engraven on thy hand. For her my tears shall fall. For her my prayers ascend, to her my cares and toils be given, till toils and cares shall end. 
You know what he was not saying? You know, I'm going to go spend all my time down at the church in committee meetings. Or I'm going to spend all my time down at the church uh, playing board games. Or hanging out and, and learning how to uh, set tables correctly. I know churches that do things like that. What he was saying is, you know what, I will partner with my church for the renewal of the world. To the glory of God. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1.24, we are workers with you for your joy. Have you guys figured out in life that real joy takes work? Fake joy doesn't take much work and is fake and doesn't last. In the 19th century, these lyrics were written, Christ, Christian, seek not yet repose. Cast your dreams of ease away. You are in the midst of foes. Watch and pray. Would you agree that as Christians today in the state of California, in the city of Los Angeles, in this area, are we in the midst of foes? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. There is a boatload of people that don't believe in God and don't follow God and are even hostile towards God's word. And the lyrics of this song was saying, don't seek to just rest. It's saying, don't, don't get caught up in this idea of the dreams of ease. He's like, put those, put those dreams away. You're in the midst of foes. Watch and pray. And we really should be writing lyrics like that over and over again in our songs today. But somehow, like I said earlier, somehow in the church today, it's become about convenience and being comfortable. And the words that end up being written today are Christians seeking early retirement. Cast your burdens far away. You're on the 18th green, putt and pray. And that's kind of the Christianity we've birthed. But if we're really living for God, are we ever going to be like that? No. When God pours your, his power into you, you will be used for Zion's sake. And the first step of revival with God and the revival for his church is a recommitment of the vows to God, to Christ. God has made a vow to you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you and build you and grow you. And I have saved you. And I am building a place for you. God has made that vow. And God's strategy is further explained here after verse 5. So it says there in verse 5, For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, and that's what Jesus is going to do, he is going to rejoice over his bride. This is my church. So God will rejoice over you. Verse 6, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. All day and all night, they will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. You know what's kind of interesting about that? Watchmen usually don't say much. What do they do? They watch. It was a trick question, okay? What do these watchmen do? 
they will never keep silent. See, what, what the picture is, is we are all the watchmen, like the sentries on the city wall, keeping our eyes peeled for what God is doing in the world today. And you know what we do? We tell people about it. Look what God is doing. We encourage one another about these momentous events that happen every single day. We speak to God, and in fact, with a language that I wouldn't have dared to use really here. It's interesting. Our prayers are to give God no rest. Have you, did you notice that? It's, it's saying give God no rest with your prayers. Continually pray. And watch what God does. Jonathan Edwards wrote a famous appeal to the Christians of his day to unite in prayer and at the end of his appeal, he wrote these words. It is very apparent from the word of God that he often tries the faith and patience of his people. Would you agree with that? Has God ever tried your patience? I've always told people, last thing I'm going to pray for is patience. Because he's going to make sure I have to wait for something. When they are crying to him for some great and important mercy by withholding the mercy sought for a season, and not only so, but at first he may cause an increase of darkness that appears. And yet he, without fail, at last prospers those who continually, urgently, in prayer, with all perseverance, will not let him go. He blesses them. There was a Norwegian theologian. His last name was Halsby. Who during World War II stood up and said, you know, what's going on with Hitler is wrong. And he suffered for it. There were many hundreds of thousands of Christians in concentration camps as well as the Jewish people. You, you realize that, right? Christians that stood up and said, this is wrong. You see, he, Halsby, understood what it meant to pray all the way through until God answers. He was praying all the way through being in the concentration camp. He was there very early on in the war, all the way through to the end. You realize how horrific that would have been all that time? But he saw God answer prayer when those American soldiers came in and opened the gate and let him go. And he said these words. He said that prayer is like mining. Prayer is like boring deep holes deep into the rock of human hearts. It's work. It tries your patience. And you sometimes just can't ever see, seem to see the results. We have this prayer time that we do on, on Thursday nights. And, and sometimes, if those of you who are here for the prayer time that we do on Thursday nights, some of you will acknowledge with me that sometimes it's kind of hard to keep praying and praying and praying, and God hasn't answered the way, any way that we've seen yet. You know, we know He answers prayer, but we haven't seen it yet. Prayers like mining, prayers like boring, boring holes deep into the rock of human hearts, it's work. It tries our patience. We can't see the results. But in God's time, he places the dynamite in the hole and lights the fuse. And the rocks crumble. God has called us to give him no rest until he makes a revived church the praise of the earth. For a few weeks in the last month, we were praying for a young 
guy that uh, got hurt riding a mechanical bull. Some people that I know know this little guy, and he got he fell off, and I've mentioned it before, but he, his head was hit by the mechanical bull, and it crushed his skull. He didn't think he was going to make it. And we've been praying and haven't really heard much for a long time. And what was it, Jenny? It was like three days ago. Got a text. He woke up today. He can move all his arms and his legs. He can talk. And you're like, that's awesome. Thank you, God. Had to wait. Had to wait a little bit. But God took the prayers. And our prayers were just simple. It was just, you know, we have no idea, Lord, if he's going to speak or ever walk again or anything. God took those prayers, put dynamite in there, blew up everyone's expectations, including the doctor who said it seemed like a switch just went on. I've never seen anything like it in my life. It's because God did it. What we see in this scripture here is that God, as it is, and it, it seems, allows himself to be overcome by prayer. And we see that in other parts of the scripture, don't we? Jacob wrestled with God, and God said to him, you, you, you've wrestled with God and men, and you prevailed. Genesis 32, 28. Jesus compares prayer to a man pounding on his neighbor's door at night. You remember this story from Jesus? And because that, and, and the, the sense of the story is because that person was so, wouldn't go away. It's like, okay, fight what? Okay, I'm going to answer this. He gives them help. That's in Luke chapter 11, verse 8. The Apostle James says the prayers of a righteous person has great power as it is working. In James 5, verse 16, God has positioned you. He's positioned me in this generation to pray down his power upon the ministry of the gospel of his church and not to quit until the whole world is praising God. And you have to remember, we know, Isaiah is telling us, guess what, everyone? The whole world will be praising God. That's the future promise. Look at verse 8. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his strong arm, I will never again give you grain as food for your enemies, nor your foreigners drink your new wine for which you have labored. But those who collect it will eat it and praise Yahweh, and those who gather it will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. God has had two ways to relate to people with two different sets of ground rules. There's the old covenant and there's the new covenant. The old covenant says, you do the right things, I will bless you. You will live. Fail to do the right thing and I will curse you. That's Deuteronomy 27 through 28, the chapters there. The new covenant sales says this, you failed at the old covenant. Which God knew. The old covenant, Mosaic covenant, was designed to show us that we couldn't live his law perfectly. We can't do that. The new covenant says you failed, you've broken my law, but now you need to realize you cannot self-correct. But the new covenant says I save sinners. And I will do everything. I'm doing everything for you through my grace in Christ. Enter into him and you will live. 
God established an old covenant relationship with Israel in the biblical times, but even back then, God led believers into a personal new covenant freedom when they lived for him in Christ. And each of us today struggles with kind of an old covenant frustration into new covenant rest. And what I mean by that is this. Each of us kind of relives this old covenant, new covenant thing in our own lives. If, you are, if you're angry with God because he seems far away, you need to understand why you're in old covenant thinking when you think God is far away. What did the Israelites think? You have forsaken me. Where are you, God? Our natural moral calculations always overestimate how awesome we are. Let me repeat that. Our natural moral calculations always overestimate what we've done and what we deserve, and we underrate all the time what God has done. And that is why the old covenant is unworkable as a way for salvation. Our deepest thoughts are too infested with hostility towards God for any sort of merit-based faith to save. I think all of us need to be real to say we failed God more than we ever know. And then, though, we blame him and get bitter and we get small and we get harmful and we get hateful. And if that's where you are with God right now, hang on. Trust him. And let him lead. He has something better. And that is life in him, in Christ. According to his new covenant arrangements, everything he demands, what does he do? He provides. Freely, forever. It's called the finished work of Christ on the cross, not the half-done work. And we need to believe that. In this passage, God promises that the old covenant defeat is not the last word for his people. When the new covenant purposes are fulfilled, they will eat and drink and do everything for the glory of God. You will see that in 1 Corinthians 10. It says these same words, foreigners shall not drink your wine. Those who gather it shall drink in the courts of my sanctuary. That's Bible code language for life in its fullness. Never again to be disturbed. We're going to be in the presence of God. And that's where he's taking his people. Aren't you glad he's taking his people to be with him? And that's what he's offering the nations as we continue in the last three verses here. Go through. Did you catch that? Go through. Go through. Go through the gates. Clear the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Remove the stones. Lift up a standard over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they will call them the holy people, the redeemed people of the Lord. And you will be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. What does Isaiah see here? He sees this walled city, formerly desolate, forsaken, but it's now repopulated with redeemed people. The gates of the city are open. A new resurfaced highway leading from the ends of the earth into the city. The nations invited to come enjoy the victory of God with his people. It's a picture of the future when the church and the world will become one. God proclaims to the end of the earth a coming salvation. All are welcome. All who welcome the call are made holy people. So you still have to welcome the call. And those who welcome the call will enter the new Jerusalem, redeemed out of the wreckage. Redeemed out of the wreckage of every human 
failed culture to the eternal glory of God. So real quick here, here are the applications. The final victory of grace isn't just wishful thinking. These verbs in here, are the future tense promises are a way of saying this is God's will. This is going to happen. Christ is preparing a place for us and the way in has actually been made easy. It's built up. It's a new highway. So anyone who desires Christ may enter in. Every living church, every Bible-believing church today is an entry point into the eternal city. Have you, have you thought of that? So the church is the bride of Christ. And when people accept Christ, they're called to be a part of his church. And when you're a part of his church and you're living life together as his church, you are in the entry point into the new Jerusalem. Because it's now the redeemed that have been pulled out of the wreckage into his church. And the gates are wide open. The only obstacle to living in the fullness of Christ forever is not accepting Christ. You see, if he isn't what you want, then heaven isn't what you want. Because heaven is Christ. Christ is the way, Christ is the reward, Christ actually in a way is the barrier. If you don't want him, you can't be in because it's the bride of Christ. But if you accept him, you're in. And what I love here is, and across your life, from the moment you accept Christ, God rewrites your name. He rewrites your name. We see that. You're going to be holy. What's your name? Holy. What else? The redeemed of the Lord. Holy. Redeemed. What else do we see there? Sought out. The Spirit seeks us out, right? You were sought out. What's the last word? Last phrase, not forsaken. Along with all of those who are in Christ, we share these names, holy, redeemed, sought out, not forsaken. So you go up to someone after church today, you can say, hello, redeemed, or hello, not forsaken. I know that sounds kind of silly, but we need to remember that. Remember the price that Christ has paid for us to be redeemed, to be the ones that were sought out by him. Isn't it a joy to know that I, you were sought out by Christ? And if, if you know you're holy, you're redeemed, you're sought out, you're not forsaken, what are you going to do in life? You are going to do everything for Zion's sake. Everything I do today, tomorrow, and as many days as God gives me here on earth, whether it's he returns soon or until he calls me home, it's for Zion's sake. Why? Because he's made me holy, he's redeemed me, he sought me out, and I'm not forsaken. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these amazing words in this section of scripture today. Lord, may we remember 
the future promise of being with you. Remember that, that you have called us to be tireless intercessors in prayer and that you answer prayer. May we remember that you have taken what is desolate and you have replaced it with delight. May we be the most joyful people in the world because, because we are holy, we are redeemed, we are sought out, we are not forsaken. Thank you, Lord, for those truths. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Hey, would you stand with me right now as we close? I want to thank you so much for being here today. Uh, we've got like a 